just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to Speaking of Influence, the podcast for speakers and professionals or anyone who wants to present with impact. Hosted by presentation persuasion coach John Ball. Remember to like and subscribe. If you're thinking of starting a podcast, there couldn't be an easier way to get started than getting started with Buzzsprout. They have all the tools and resources you need for starting a podcast and getting out to all the major podcasting networks. Check out the link in the show notes and get your podcast started today. Welcome to Speaking of Influence. I'm very happy to have you here on the show and I'm especially happy to introduce my guest for today. Now, she is a career coach, a speaker, a stand-up comic, and she is president of Personal Touch Career Services. She's had a teaching job and been teaching skills since 2004. She has eight years of experience in HR and recruitment, so she knows her stuff. And she's the author of an amazing book, Get a Job Without Going Crazy, which is in its third edition. So that's doing very well as well. And the host of Tattooed Freaks in Business Suits, which uh, is uh, probably the most unusual name for a podcast I've ever come across. But please welcome to the show, Donna Shannon. Hi, Donna. Hi, John. How are you today? I'm really good and really looking forward to speaking to you. Like we have, we have a few things in common. Now, I'm not a stand-up comedian, but uh, both podcasters and uh, we both do some presentation work and stuff. So uh, it's nice to have uh, nice to have some things in common before we even get started speaking. We had a lovely chat a little while back, and it's one of the reasons why I've been looking forward to chatting with you today. So I would like for the audience's benefit for you to explain. I've given you a bit of an introduction, but explain a little bit more about what you do and where if like where humor ties in with uh, with the work that you do yeah absolutely so just to give you a little bit better picture of what a career coach is because sometimes people don't understand that so a career counselor might be the kind of person who would put you through like personality testing or strong interest inventory uh skills assessment those kind of things to help you figure out what you're going to be when you grow up as a career coach i'm a lot more focused on those practical tools for the job search so the way I'd like to put that is, I don't want to talk about your feelings. I just want to tell you what to do. Right. <laughs> and uh, we have a lot of great tools in order to do that. Uh, so that's where I've been teaching the job searching classes since 2004. Uh, as a former HR person and recruiter, I do a lot of work involved with the, you know, how do you get past the guard dog? Because I was like that grumpy recruiter who never let your resume get through to the HR um, hiring manager and those kind of things. So obviously, even though I deal with a lot of very serious topics, I like to interject a lot of humor into that. And I get people tell me that all the time from my classes and from reading the book that we took a very dry subject matter, made it interesting and funny. So it's actually a good read that sucks you in. 
Which is great. You know, I think I can think already a lot of my clients in my group coaching program who are looking for jobs or thinking about moving jobs at the moment could probably benefit to learn a lot from you and from what you do. And so I'm going to be at least pushing them in the direction of your book and to check out more of your information for sure. It's interesting that you bring humor in. And this is a thing that's come up on a few of the chats I've had, not just with comedians, of course, they need to bring humor in, but, but with, uh, with presenters as well. Like, this is such an important part of presenting. And yet so many people try and push it to one side because they think not very good at that or don't want to take the risk of trying for a joke and it falling flat. Um, and yet, you know, I talk a lot in my work about tools of influence and persuasion. I think humor is one of the most influential tools that there is and doesn't really get talked about or presented in, in those sorts of terms because it has the power, like you mentioned, to make something that's really dry a bit more interesting. Right. And it's certainly not the kind of stereotypical thing where I'm like, I'm sipping in front of the crowd. Let me open with a joke about lawyers. And it's like a like a hacky thing that you've heard a hundred times or whatever. I like to find the natural humor within things. So, for example, one of the stories that I like to tell when I'm emphasizing how important it is to be honest and be yourself within the interview is a time when my husband was up for a job at his company. And he's been in his job for like 15 years, like literally the same job. Right. And you know, he was told the only reason he didn't get the job was number one, they hired somebody with a finance degree because this was within his own company. So they gave him direct feedback. And then the second reason why is because he had an inconsistent answer to the question of where you see yourself in five years, which is totally stupid because there's only one answer for that question. Do you know what it is, John? Uh, I, I would guess it's doing what they want you to do. <laughs> Right. Well, it's like, it's like the brown nosy answer we have to give, right? It has to be, I see myself working for you, adding to my skills and moving up the company ladder, right? Anything else makes you look non-committed to the company. Mm -hmm. So Ryan gave the right answer to the HR person. But when he was meeting with the director of finance, he told him his actual real life goal, which was to go back to school to learn how to become a mortician, so obviously that has nothing to do with finance. And then he was also now the creepy guy who wants to play around with dead bodies. Needless to say, he hasn't been up for any other jobs at his company since then. Right. So that's a real world scenario that a lot of people, it's like, oh, well, I don't want to be a mortician. But yeah, it totally drives home the point of how important it is to be not only honest, but also consistent in the face that you're presenting to employers through the job search process. Right. And uh, an interview process probably isn't the best place to start off your improv career as well. <laughs> if, you, right. if you're thinking that you want to try and be funny. Um, but, uh, but I get that you know, consistency is super important, but there is also an expectation. Like if you're there for a job, um, most people are going to be thinking that the, one of the main things, I guess, that people think in the interview world is, is this person going to fit in, in the company? And if they're not, then, you know, they're, we're probably not going to look elsewhere, but not just that. Are they going to stick around? Is it going to be worth us investing time and energy and, and money or whatever into hiring this person if they're, you know, if, if a few years down the line they want to be a mortician or the new lead singer of Van Halen or something like that? You know, it's like right. different, different goals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, so from from that perspective, then just to sort of get a bit a bit more in the career coaching before we move into the more comedy side of your career, um, what is some of the best advice you could give to people who are looking for work at the moment, other than giving the right right answers and staying consistent? What right. other what other tips could you offer that might be useful to people? So one of the things that I always emphasize is to do like a two prong attack to the job search itself. So especially here in the United States and in the age of COVID, we have very high unemployment. So that means you've got a lot of competition for every single job that you apply to. So on the practical side, you need to, you know, apply through HR just to prove you're a good boy or a girl who can follow instructions and, you know, basically do what you're told, right? But there's nothing against the rules about reaching out to hiring managers directly. So whether you're finding them on LinkedIn or doing research on the company itself, I I teach a number of different tools because, you know, if you think about it, 20% of your job search should be spent on actually applying to positions while the other 80% is the networking, tracking down the managers, getting in touch with people, finding out about the companies doing the research. And most job seekers flip that the other way because they don't know how to do that 80%. And it's real easy to go find jobs online and just blast a resume out, even if it's not being effective. So, I mean, people always say it's not what you know, it's who you know. But, um, Mm -hmm. and I always frame that again into it's who you get to know. And uh, there's a lot of power in network. And I've often talked to clients about this thing of, if you have, if you're in a hiring position and you have the choice between knowing someone who between hiring someone who's known to you and hiring someone who is completely unknown to you, like all you've got is a CV, you're more likely, if there's a similarity there, unless there's some major exception in ability, to go with the known quantity. That's human nature. Mm-hmm. So, so getting to getting to be known by some of the important people may give you a, a bit of an advantage there, but also there's a good chance you'll get some insights into the business culture from them and, and a lot of opportunities there. So I think it's, uh, it's great advice. Let's, let's come then to the comedy part because you also do some stand-up comedy. How did that start? Where did that come from? Okay, so that's like a weird story that's kind of convoluted. So I, I'm going to like take you all the way back to when I was a kid. So I had two dream carriers when I was a kid. So the first one was, I wanted to be like a wacky morning DJ on the radio, right? Very practical choice there. Uh And then my second career option was to be a stand-up comedian. I don't know why, but those were the things that drew me when I was a kid. And uh, along with the way, I actually was a morning show producer here in Denver for a while, which is very hard to get. And I got it in a very unusual manner. I use that a lot when I'm coaching people to like, do these 90 degree turns to find these other career paths. And uh, I only started doing the stand-up comedy back in 2018. And it all started because I was working with a, actually a speaking coach. His name is Ron Ben Joseph. And we had met at a networking event. He was helping me smooth out some things and like my keynote presentations It springboarded into like, redirecting a big part of my book and just being a lot more genuine and authentic as well as having that humorous story. And offhanded, I mentioned, because Ron also has done stand-up comedy in his past, that, um, you know what, I used to want to be a stand-up comic. And Ron offhandedly says, 
well, far be it from me to squash your dreams. And I was all like, it ate on me, right? <laughs> that crazy seed got in my brain once again. And I'm all like, well, why couldn't I be a stand-up comic? And one of the radio stations I was listening to, they were doing a contest for local stand-up comics to open their grand festival that they were doing that this year. It was actually one of the stations of the conglomerate that I used to work for. And there was a couple of people that were doing their stand-up routines. I'm like, well, my stories are funnier than that. (laughs) Great. I could do that. And so I worked with Ron and putting together a set and kind of refining the message and learning the art of the joke versus just telling a story. Mm -hmm. And uh, so my very first time on stage was a seven minute set, which is really long. Yeah. 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 In terms of aim for five minutes. Right. Uh, And that's, that, that's hard work as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, and then, then I was hooked and we've done a number of different (laughs) shows. Um, Obviously in the age of COVID, I've been doing more, Uh, virtual shows, Zoom open mics, these kind of things. But I can say that I'm a professional comedian. I have actually been paid. (laughs) Well, that's an an important part of it. It, it, One thing is, whilst it's not been great for comedians this uh, this year um, with with COVID and quarantines and everything, it's it's worked out okay for me because I get to have chats with all the people who've got a bit more time on their hands because because they're not going out or they're not getting booked for gigs. But uh, you know, obviously, I hope for them to that. And, and I hear, especially in the UK, where a lot of my connections are, that work is coming back again and things are starting to come back slowly. And uh, even it's just getting the bookings arranged now, trying to keep all these venues with social distancing and everything else that has to be observed is uh, is. It's challenging, challenging for the people who are trying to make money off of that, for sure. And right. One of the times. things that I started doing and booking some other comics to do is uh, we are selling opening comic sets for like regular Zoom meetings. Yes. So I did one for one of my connections with the Arvada Chamber of Commerce here in Colorado. And, you know, she just brought me in. I did like five minutes. And uh, that was that. And then I was out and they did the rest of their meeting because it was a nice way to break up all the boring Zoom meetings. Everybody's so tired of it and pounded you know, to death with it. But I, what I loved about it is that this particular gig, I got paid in meat. So, <laughs> That's unusual. Was that by choice? Was that your, was that your, like your rider? I only get paid in meat or... No, but it would be an interesting writer. I think <laughs> it's like a gift card for like a premium meat supplier, but cool. it's all like you're not a real comic until you've said I've been paid in meat. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, that's certainly uh, unusual, but you know, when t- in times when people may be maybe there's a lot of worry about how things are going to go with the shops, is everything going to be available still? might be quite reassuring to get paid meat so mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not, mm-hmm. not such a bad thing wait you mentioned that your stories you felt were funnier already than the ones you heard from other people who were putting themselves forward so did you always think of yourself as someone who was funny is that something that you've always kind of had or has kind of seemed easy for you you know I, that sounds so arrogant but probably yes <laughs> <laughs> and it, I was kind of a weird kid. I wasn't popular or anything like that. So 
you know, I used to get like my little tape recorder and just like record my own shows. That's how weird of a kid I was. And the whole thing but the appeal with the stand-up comics is because I didn't have a whole lot of connections with other kids and we had cable. So I would like watch the comics, like the George Carlin's, the Robin Williams and um, Whoopi Goldberg stand-up routines, Billy Crystal. And I felt like I knew them. So they're like, in my mind, they were like my imaginary friends. Yeah. So I kind of developed that natural rhythm with humor. And it wasn't until I got, later into high school and certainly all my college friends thought I was really funny. Um, but just when they were drunk. So <laughs> everybody drunk or high all the time, not usually a good idea. <laughs> well, more, more things tend to be funnier or, or seem funnier when we're drunk or high, I guess. So uh, mm-hmm. as be, uh, for a comedian, you want to test your humor outside of that, of course, as well, and know that uh, that you're funny in other areas. So, so you already were the kind of person who was thinking about stories. And and what's interesting to me, like I have some stuff in my show about storytelling quite often and about humor, and those two things, of course, cross into each other very well. And um, that when people are the, the science of it, when stories, when people are listening to stories, that our brainwaves start to sink as well. And when we are laughing along, at, mostly in the same places, hopefully, that uh, that also that is part of a synchronization and almost a, um, community building in some way. Like we feel closer to people who are laughing with us. We feel like you know, that we like more similarity than um, things that aren't very similar to us. And we have, I think, a greater uh, trust with the person who is doing that for us as well. It's like a real bonding sort of thing. What, what, what are your thoughts on that from someone who does that? I totally agree. I totally agree because uh, some of the things I study as far as my speaking career was like, we have the four types of learning. I'm not just talking about the visual, the auditory or the kinesthetics. We're talking about like the people who connect to stories, the people who connect to data, the people who connect to, um, experiences like getting a chance to try it out. And then of course we also have those who are more focused on like practical applications, right? You know, give me the stereo instructions and I'll figure it out kind of things. Yeah. And yeah, early in my speaking career, it was crafting stories. That was the most difficult for me because I tend to be more like rush in, let's get this done. And it's like, no, you need to pull in people's names. You need to pull in these other details. It's like a famous example of a guy's telling a story and he had his dog while he was walking by a fire. And then he ran, ran in and saved the lady's cats, threw him out the window and all the rest of this. And all, in the audience, somebody always goes, well, what happened to the dog? It's like, <laughs> I don't know. The dog just took care of itself. It's like those kind of details I would miss. And that's where you're like working with speaking coaches or going to a lot of the speaker academy type things to fill in how to do the storytelling better because it wasn't always natural in my mind to fill in all those other details that someone else needs to follow it yeah Uh, it would be interesting then to actually hear a little bit more about that creative process like how do you go about let's say you're going to do a comedy set or any kind of presentation where you're going to be looking to strike some humor how do you go about putting that together so 
It depends. And one of the things that I've made sure is that I always have like a notebook with me because sometimes I'll get like a weird, funny joke or a thought that just kind of hits me out of the blue and I need to write it down and capture it before I forget. Um, Sometimes if I'm like trying to write to topic, that can be some of the most challenging things. So I like to tell people I've got material that ranges from family friendly to definitely a very hard R. And the hardest stuff for me to develop is the ones that are family friendly. And trying to still be original in that vein and just kind of recognizing, all right, maybe talk about killing your mother is not family friendly material. <laughs> Generally, <laughs> no. Yeah. 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 I'm not saying I hate my mother. It's, you know, it's more along the lines of when we had to like set up her medical powers of attorney. And don't want to give Ryan the power of that because you have to be very careful about who you choose to make those decisions for you. And, you know, just imagine my mom being in the hospital and Ryan wandering in there going, oh, doctor, I can't stand to see her suffer this way. Just, just please, please. But let's put her out of her misery. I, I don't want her to suffer. Uh, Mr. Shannon, she's just sleeping right now. <laughs> no, no, I'll do it myself. And he starts fun pulling plugs. Uh, Mr. Shannon, you just unplug the TV. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Careful about who you put in charge of your power of attorney. Anyways, I digress. So as the other thing about developing the stories and developing the material is I took me forever to get over the trying to wing it as I had done for all my life to actually writing out a comedy set and making sure that there's enough jokes built into it. Mm. So like the core of the story itself is funny. But how do we skew that into actual jokes? And I think that's still an art that I'm refining. Um, so back in February, before everything got shut down, I got to do a newbie set, the Denver Comedy Works, which is a world-famous comedy club here in Denver. It's like the, the main game in town. Um, they do a, a newbie night on every Tuesday, so I finally got a set in there. And it's just the two minutes. That's all you get two to three minutes for the very first time you ever go up there. Okay. So I had to scale back from like 20 minute sets into two minutes. And to get the feedback, it's like, okay, you had this many laughs in your two minutes. It took this many seconds to get to your first laugh. You had this many seconds between each laugh and all the rest. So that was a different way of me to look at it. Yeah. So my stats were not that great on the numbers, but my laughs were really big. Right. Did but they measure the volume of, uh, of the laughs? I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's more, I think when you're on a stage, that's probably more important for, for, for the performer, right? And if people have a bigger reaction, then, then that's probably means it's more memorable what you said and that they're, they're responding well to it. Uh, but yeah, I never really thought about comedy or humor in terms of those sorts of metrics, but I guess that's important. I know that one of the, one of the most popular TED talks ever, I don't know if it's still the number one TED talk ever, but it certainly has been, um, was the one with uh, very sadly recently deceased Sir Ken Robinson. And um, it's all about education and it's about uh, do, uh, does, do schools kill creativity is the topic. Pretty dry topic, right? I mean, as I'm talking about school and education and create, uh, maybe creativity isn't quite so dry, but um, 
in terms of a presentation, when it's being analyzed, it shows that he, he generally gets more, more laughs per minute in that talk than many comedians get in a whole set. Uh, it's, it's a very punchy, humor-packed talk. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, that was so influential, and certainly one of the reasons why it's very popular. We talk about um, the difference of like influence being something that you have and persuasion being something that you do. Um, it was kind of when he created that influence, not just from his own uh, standing, but also from developing that humor and rapport with the audience that then instantly made him more persuasive and instantly made his argument more persuasive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you've ever, ever seen that talk, but I mean, for me, it's uh, it's a great model for, you know, if you're going to do a TED or TEDx talk, something like that, uh, that I, I couldn't really think of a talk I'd rather try and model and, and aim to be more like than, than that particular one. For, for them, where where do you find the humor in the set in the stuff that you put together like how do you decide what's gonna what you think gonna try out and put into a set and uh what you're just gonna like nah leave that i definitely don't do a lot of political things i do a lot of things drawing from my own experience so i don't have a whole ton of covid jokes right but um and i do kind of pick fun at myself but it's not the self-depreciating humor. Uh, I don't want to do that to myself. And it's like not like comedy therapy. Although I think everybody has a little bit of comedy therapy when they go about the things they're doing. But, uh, you know, I've just gotten in some funny situations and I build on things from there. Or I just have like a unusual perspective on things. So... Uh, I'm definitely a nerd. I have uh, a very large collection of Star Wars toys and things along those lines. So, yes, we've got some Star Wars jokes in there, of course, a lot of pop culture references. But it's also a matter of sometimes when things come out, it's because I've moved through it. So back in 2019, when I started to develop all my mom jokes, my mom actually had a a serious accident, broke her pelvis, um, was you know couldn't live on her own anymore is extremely stressful time obviously um and uh, just a massive life transition it was very hard for me to deal with and i got asked to do a clean show my, my first clean show right in the midst of all this happening and i'm like okay i need to develop some clean material big challenge we already know and then that's where i was just like writing some stuff out about this whole power of attorney and some of the other things with mom, like my mom is literally the worst cook on the planet. Right? <laughs> and I worked with Ron to refine some of these jokes too. And by the time I was writing jokes about mom's awful cooking, I started to realize I was going to be okay with the transition that mom was going through. Cause it's like I had gone through that dark space and I was on the other half. It's like, okay, now I don't have to bear my soul. I don't have to talk about, Hey, yeah, my mom fell and stairs and broke herself and all this, this, cause that's not mm-hmm. funny, but her bad cooking is pretty funny. Yeah. And, um, then it's also understanding too, that the person I am on stage is a character, even though I'm telling my personal stories. And that's why we're pulling in the jokes that may not directly relate to my real life. And that's something I still got to keep in mind. 
Well, that's an interesting aspect in itself because, you know, as someone who is more of a public speaker than anything else, when I, I know when I go onto a stage and, and do, I know you do some public speaking as well. When I go onto a stage as a public speaker, um, I'm me. I, I'm not a character, I'm me. But it's still a performance. Mm-hmm. It's still a performance and going up there. And, uh, and I'm aware that for in comedy, you really do kind of need this this persona, this character that you you go up on. Like that's uh, almost like having your your archetype that you that you most relate to. That that's uh, that people can kind of categorize you and have a sense of who you are and what they're going to get from you. Um, and that that's like you mentioned about consistency in the sort of job world, like similar kind of thing here as well with having that kind of consistency. So, so what is that for you and, and how did you find it? You know, it's something I've only really been developing over the past few months and probably since the beginning of the year and understanding the art of the comedy side of things. Um, and it's me, but it's also not all the worms. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Now, if I'm doing like a presentation and I do uh, some other speaking gigs, because I've actually been sober for 20 years. So sometimes I speak to sober groups as well. Okay. And that's very raw and that's very real. And that's totally me. And there's some awesome, funny jokes within that, but it's only for that community. Right. It's like very select people get to see that part of me even though the, some of those other stories have been modified to fit onto a larger stage. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. But how would, how would you then describe that character of yourself? I mean, other than just not having some of the flaws and stuff, are there some specific traits or some things that you thought about, right, let's make this version of me more like this? Mm-hmm. So me, the comic on stage, it's almost like there's a little bit of a sweet aspect to it, but then there's like this bite that you didn't see coming. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like a scorpion serving a cake kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah, but it's not mean because I'm not a mean comic. It's just more along those things of like, okay, cool, I can accept this. Where the hell did that come from? So for example, um, one of the, sometimes I'll tell stories about, you know, my old drinking career, just, you know, that's, and that's when I was like on the morning show, um, it's KBPI FM out here, which is like a, a heavy metal station, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, when I left that job, because of course I just left in a blaze of glory as a, <laughs> as a drunk <laughs> on my own choice, by the way, okay. and then turned around and got my next dream career, which was to be a DJ at a club. Yep. So it was a very glamorous job. It was part-time in a strip club, day shift in Boulder. If you don't know Boulder, Colorado, that's like <laughs> the hippie part of Colorado. Uh, so, so some interesting career choices here on your path to becoming a career coach for sure. Yeah. See, I'm all about following your dreams, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I always like there's a there's a card I sometimes see, and I forget the the guy who does it. I think it's something like uh, uh, Ed, I think it was Edward Monk or something like that. But it's not like follow your dreams, except for that one about being chased by a giant spider. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 
It's, sometimes that's good advice. Sometimes people following their dreams is just people deluding themselves, right? So, so how, how do you know the difference and should you just go for it anyway? So um, back on the career coaching side, is this dream worthy or not? And, you know, I do encourage people to go the, after the things they want, but you got to understand you're going to have to work really damn hard for it. And are you okay with being close to the dream? So in my path to getting onto the morning show, I actually started off in the business office, like literally in the mail room and worked my way up in the, in the business office for three years. And then I was doing uh, graveyard shifts on the weekends for the AM station, just like running the board. And, and I also have a degree in music business management, audio engineering and all this stuff. So it sounds all crazy and how I got there. But this was actually a systematic plan that I developed over years. Oh, yeah. And the other part of the story was I was a single mom with three kids because I got married when I was in high school. Right. So, of course, let's just add some more layers of crap onto this, right? <laughs> and, uh, so I had to make sure I was making enough money while pursuing this dream to support the kids and all the rest of this. And... Then when I got on with the morning show, I mean, of course, I had a lot of help with it along the way, but making that leap from the business office into the morning show, and Denver, by the way, is a top 40 market, meaning it's in one of the major 40 radio broadcast markets across the United States. It's not easy to get on on-air job in any of those stations. And uh, so to make the leap from the morning, the business office to the morning show, it was something like nobody had seen ever. It's just completely out of the blue. And you know, I had the general managers telling me they had never seen anything like that in their 15 years of experience in radio. And uh, so when I tell people, even if it's highly improbable, you should go for it, but you really need to have a good plan. You've got to understand you're going to have to work your ass off. Like right now, my son is deciding he wants to get into the entertainment industry too. And um, I kind of want to slap him around a bit. <laughs> Not because it's a bad idea, but because he's doing the fantasy thing instead of the working on it thing. This like, is like everyone who watches uh, American Idol or uh, any X Factor or any of that stuff thinking, oh, yeah, all I have to do is go and go on a talent show and win it and then I'll be set. And it yeah. doesn't work that way. Right. I mean, he's done some comedy shows with us. You know, he's definitely funny. He's got some talent. He's just too damn lazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. And success in the, in the entertainment industry really does take uh, – an awful lot of work I mean, you have to work damn hard to get successful right mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it's not just developing material it's all the other stuff that the, sure. promotion, the, the, the marketing, marketing the bookings the, everything else that you have to do all the stuff that people don't see when you just get up there and perform for a few for a few minutes you know it's like um one of the things that often we talk about in the in coaching world and may, maybe you've come across it before but uh, when you're in business if you're a business owner you're the, one of the main roles or responsibilities that you really have whatever industry you're in is marketing and what mm -hmm. that's what you're really in so as much as I, i'm a coach and a trainer and that those are the things that i love doing and spending my time doing and those are my expertise I am more than that. I'm a marketer because if I don't market my products and services, no one's going to buy them. So <laughs> that's how it right. goes. 
So, right. so we have to understand there's this, all this uh, work that goes on behind the scenes. And hopefully, you know, when we get a bit more successful or we have more money coming and we can delegate other people to take care of a lot of that for us and focus on all the bits that are fun and that we, that we excel at. But, uh, but still, it takes work and it takes you know, perspiration and uh, persistence and, and, all, and rejection as well. I mean, in entertainment, that's, I think that has to be one of the hardest things and maybe one of the things that maybe stopped me from going into uh, not, not stand-up but acting I know I did drama at university and stuff and and uh, it wasn't just the rejections of in of uh, auditions and stuff that, that I maybe had some fear around but the idea of probably potentially being poor for a really long time right. you know, and having to do uh, waiting jobs forever or bar jobs forever so that I could go to auditions and and try for a lifestyle that I may never achieve or an objective that I may never achieve um I didn't have that in me and you know I think uh, anyone who goes into that should have that awareness of you really I think you really do need to be a this is the only thing I want to do mm-hmm. and a mentality to go into it but there's also like the other piece I was saying is like, are you happy being close? Are you happy just being in the environment? Um, for example, like decades ago, you know, back when it was more like trying to do the music business management side of things, uh, you know, I met a drummer, young kid, I think he was still in high school, really good, just, and I'm talking like the heavy metal double basing and all the rest of the thrash kind of drums, which takes some talent to pull that off. You know, like a Neil Perk kind of level with this guy who knew his tools and how to use them. And, you know, I, I said to him once, you know, what's your career goal? And he's like, man, if I could have a career just making music for the rest of my life, I'd be happy. I don't care if I just end up in a cover band doing regular gigs at the local bars or if I get like world tours. And I'm like, this is a guy who's going to be having a successful, happy life because He's okay with anything that gets him involved in the, and it's like the, the people are like, oh, I must be a pop star. Anything else is just not good enough. It's like, then you missed the mark. You really did. Yeah, yeah. Be, we'd kind of be like, are you, you know, you're you're a podcaster as well, but they kind of like. Uh, most podcasters I speak to, similar to myself, most people don't start their podcast thinking that they're going to make a load of money from doing it. And we do it because it, you you talk about things that you love talking about. You talk about things that matter to you. And the majority of podcasts that ever, ever get started um, don't make much money, if any at all. Mm. And that, that's just the reality. So certainly some do, and some are going to be, to be incredibly successful. But um, I, I think out of out of all the podcasts that are out there, um, most of them get pod fade, as they call it now, very quickly after maybe mm-hmm. like six or seven episodes. It's like people, most podcasts don't even make it that far and uh, uh, and people give up really early because I think it's that expectation of, well, you know, if, if I build it, they will come. And it's like, nope. Well, you got to keep building it. <laughs> you got to build it, promote it research it know what you're doing do more of that uh, make more episodes make it more interesting keep up the excitement keep getting good guests on you know that there's so many moving parts to it all and and none of it may ever make you money but you know it just might but if that's your reason for doing it um it's, it's a really bad idea uh, if you have the passion for it and you're happy to talk about it and give up 
segments of your life to talk about it and create the content, then uh, then you might, you know, you might stick with it and you might get somewhere with it in the future if, if enough other people tune into it and like it. I think yeah. that, that's, that's really important. Yeah, and that's why I do my podcast too, The Tattooed Freaks and Business Suits, which is like silly name, serious purpose, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I did want to certainly get around to that. What, what actually is Tattoo Freaks and Business Suits about? So it's all about Gen X, millennials, and those to come after as we start taking positions of leadership in the business world, but still want to be ourselves. So obviously, I am a tattoo freak. Every now and then, somebody gets offended by that name. It's like, well, I'm, it's me. So yeah, deal with it. <laughs> and uh, we always explore a different aspect of the business world or job searching or sometimes both. And... Uh, Right now we're doing it once a month. I had been doing it a little bit more frequently. Uh, and you know, the real reason why I started the podcast is because it takes me back to my radio roots and I just love that art form. And, you know, it, it just goes right back, right back into those things that it I love. It keeps alive for you, I guess, really, isn't it? The, uh, the radio host in you. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah. But uh, but when you're when you're doing the podcast, what, what what's your what's your goal with it? I like to highlight whichever guest I'm going to be having on, right? And so I'm always thinking of people that would be interesting to my audience. And we've had some of, some of the ones that have gotten the best responses have been like tattoo artists, professional piercers. Like you know, how do you get to do a good tattoo? What to look for? Uh, and just that's been like one of the more interesting parts to explore it. I love that side of things. Uh, but also a big part of it too is the people who are being them genuine selves in the work environment. Right. And so I've talked to people who've done like HR for the federal government, <laughs> which you wouldn't think were heavily tattooed, but they were, <laughs> you know, I do like to focus on diversity and initiatives, mm -hmm. like how to get more of that going on. Uh, the practical side of the job searching is like things from recruiter perspectives. We've talked about interviewing skills, uh, all of those kind of things, leadership, emotional intelligence, anything that can help somebody really develop their professional career, even if they're not looking for a job. Yeah, I, I can certainly think of a time when, uh, certainly when I was first on the job market and we're talking over over 25 years ago i'm afraid but um where, uh, where uh, having tattoos would uh, or certainly visible tattoos would have been uh, a major disadvantage uh, it would have i mean it would have been an, it would be essentially immediately dismissed as a possibility if you, if you had uh, visible tattoos and i can even think now even uh, even now thinking like my 12 years in the airline anyone who had tattoos on their visible on their arms had to wear long sleeve shirts they uh, mm -hmm. Uh, guys and not not so many of the girls although more so now and um yeah it's it's interesting but i mean i feel that that has shifted in, in the business world a lot uh maybe not to the point where you might have like uh some big face tattoo or something like that that might still be right. in certain jobs but. i think we're still getting to that level but you know it like you and especially colorado in particular and even in for the united states is a very heavily tattooed state uh lots and lots of ink around here and just like most gen x i'm the same thing when i started getting my tattoos it would be in positions spots that would be easily covered and i'm only kind of getting now and i'm 50 years old into 
places on my body that are more, oh, you see that thing immediately. It's all like, well, that's not hiding anymore. But um, yeah, there's still times when I come stuff off stage from a presentation or if I'm at a conference and I'm like lounging by the pool afterwards and people like do the double tickets like what? Because I've got like nine very large pieces. <laughs> They're like mind blown because they had no idea. But uh, we do make fun of millennials though. And by the way, tattoo artists are making fun of millennials too on this one. In so <laughs> in what way? So when we all started with the tattoos that were easy to cover for millennials, they like go right to, oh, I've got my lower arm done, you know, like my forearm or my hands or on my neck. And um, even tattoo artists are like, yeah, I'd have this guy come in and you look at him with his T-shirt on. He was like, yeah, as many tattoos as I do. And he took off his shirt. He had like nothing on his chest. It was just the neck and the hands. And they're like, what are you doing? You don't start there. You don't. Those are like finishing moves. I must admit, I would be clueless, uh, never having had a tattoo. I, I had a few, uh, um, few piercings in my ear when I was younger, uh, that, but that was as far as far as I ever went. And I think it wasn't because I didn't want to. It really was more a case of I couldn't really think about w- what I would like enough to want to make it indelible on my skin. And I, and I guess even now, if I if I really saw something, thought actually, yeah, maybe. Um, then maybe I, I maybe I would go for it, but uh, you know, as I say, I, I'm kind of getting close to close to fifty myself, and, I, and I'm still at a two virgin. I think maybe it's not so likely to happen now, but uh, <laughs> but what, never too late. Yeah, no. I guess not. But what what do, what do they kind of? Uh, it's just kind of interesting to know. But what what do they kind of mean for you? Is it like something that that do they have to have personal meaning, or is it just art that you like, or is it sometimes something that's humorous, or well, or maybe different for each one? I don't know. Uh, most of them have meaning, so either something, a milestone in my life or a deeper connection, like one of my tattoos is for uh, when I was younger, I, I was a stay-at-home mom for five years, so I got a tattoo to commemorate that one. I've got a couple of tattoos for each one of my degrees, because I've got two degrees now, um, and the, the marriage tattoos, so... Because I've been married a few times because I'm a keeper. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only covered up with one of them. From the ones that are are X or? Yeah, no names. No names, just pictures. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I'm always a bit concerned about the the ones with names on them. uh, Unless it's like commemorating somebody who's been in your life. But uh, yeah, okay. It's, It's... um, I will never say never. It's uh, it's one possibility. I, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I, maybe I could convince my husband to come and do do one with me as mm-hmm. well. Because I think we'd both have to get them if we were going to do it. You know, there you uh, go. There you go. And just you know, you, you make it something so that you know later on, if uh, you have to explain it, if it's like a nice pretty picture or something, it's all you can change the meaning in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a very good idea now i've seen some really cool ones over the years and i have, certainly have nothing against them i just say i've never yet come across a design that i want to uh yeah, want to print on my body but uh i'm not going to rule it out so i want to i want to come back to to the humor and uh, the speaking stuff now if if for example you were given a, a three to five minute uh, performance to do in the next couple of weeks with some, so some fresh material. Um, where would you start? 
uh, all fresh material. So, of course, you're going to put me on the spot like that. <laughs> because on the Joy of having your own show, you can put your guests on the spot. <laughs> right. So, of course, the question is, you know, what's the audience? Are we looking at a pure humor set or are we looking at like job seekers? So let's so let's say there. Um, let's say it's a, a conference of uh, business people, and you mm -hmm. want someone to do some some funny stuff. I would probably start off with something that's going to be universal for the crowd itself. So LinkedIn, I'm definitely a LinkedIn expert, and like, oh, this would actually be an, an awesome idea right now. Is like the ten biggest mistakes to avoid in LinkedIn. Or don't commit these seven LinkedIn cardinal sins. That would be definitely some good material to work with. Right. And stuff that people will be able to relate to because they're probably all on the platform and, and maybe have even done most of these things themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. I mean, those, those are really good things to be thinking about. One of the reasons why I wanted to particularly touch on humor as a presentation tool is because I think so many people are afraid of it. And, and you know, they, as we've said before, they don't like to, just people sometimes don't want to touch it because they think it's going to fall flat and uh, they, have, they have all this fear around it. So what would be your words of advice to help someone get started with adding some humor into a presentation or maybe even the first stint, the first go as a stand-up? I would say find out what's genuine about you and then look for the humor within it. I, as I've developed more on the comedy side of things, I kind of like have different categories for where I put my stories, right? So there's things that are amusing. Then the next level up is it's humorous. The next is funny. And then the final one is it's absolutely freaking hilarious right and it's it's kind of the same creations that i would do in radio as well because when you're building audience rapport and you have guests and things like that it's you've got longer time frames than just like pounding things out in a three or to five minute set on stage but it's those same kind of things is like is i was heard some bob newhart on one of the comedy stations that i was listening to because i listen to old comedy bits on radio as well yeah and i'm like listening to him and he's considered one of the masters and i'm all like oh, all his stuff it's like amusing or humorous i'm not seeing the freaking hilarious until he gets to the very end and this was a long setup story of his and i started to realize you know what that's a pretty legit tactic You've got the humorous things that catches people. It draws them in, draws them in, sets the premise, sets the premise. And then you pound them with the freaking hilarious at the end. And everybody remembers the freaking hilarious at the end. And they don't remember the rest of the arc they took to get there. It's and it's like, yep, yeah, I, yeah. I have. Back in the books, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I do have some story arcs that follow that. So even if you're just like coming from the point of view, it's like, Here's my humorous story that I tell at cocktail parties that everybody says is funny. That's so all like, okay, humorous is a great place to start. Now let's hone it and hone it and get to the point where it's freaking hilarious. Mm. I, I do think one of, one of the reasons perhaps why so many people are afraid of that is because um, the first time anyone's ever going to hear their speech is when they get up and actually do it. Mm -hmm. um, 
that need to not be the case if you're going to, especially if you're going to do humor, you do need to test stuff out. I mean, if, if you're in a safe environment where you're going to get fee good feedback on that and you're comfortable with testing some stuff out and trying some different things, great. Um, but if you're not, if you're doing a professional presentation, you need to try the stuff out. I mean, you yeah, can't just get up on the stage and hope, hope for the best. But I think so many people do that, especially like wedding speeches or uh, you know, professional presentations and the likes and, and mm -hmm. it's bomb. Yeah. And totally coaches are important. I mean, get some coaches, get some classes. I mean, I've done a lot of that, especially over the last few years, you know, people will take you as seriously as you take yourself. So if you're not serious about making your presentations better by investing into a coach or into classes, and you just think you're going to get up there and wing it because all your friends say you're funny at parties, they're going to be really disappointed with your outcomes. And it took me forever to go the, you know, the whole enemy, uh, good is the enemy of great. Right. Yeah. And it takes a while to get out of that comfort zone and go, you know what? I can be better. Yeah. Well, great. Uh, you mentioned uh, a bit earlier about having a notebook on you to like jot down things that like inspirations may get or something like, I think no, I, I, I have tried that, but I keep forgetting to take my notebook with me. So I get these ideas and I was like, oh, damn it. And then what was that idea? And you know, it's gone. Um, but I do try and keep daily journals. I keep a journal. Um, I had a guest on a while back who's like an expert storyteller and uh, um, he has an incredible book called Story Worthy. And one of the things he talks about is homework for life. He teaches the thing called homework for life, which is keeping a daily journal of anything that was story worthy in your day. And then not long after I had a guest on who was saying does something very similar in terms of what was humorous, what was funny, the, the key does. Do, do you keep any kind of journal other than your, your notebook on you to jot down the ideas? Do you have some stuff where you store your material? I am horrible about journaling. So <laughs> I will admit that one. I mean, that's a, that's a great idea. And maybe I should start doing that <laughs> to make sure I don't lose my material. That's for yeah. certain. I, I mean, I do think, I do think, you know, you're right to mention, uh, say about stories, because I think if you're going to start being humorous, I think stories is the best place to start. We nearly all have stories. Most of us have had stories or experiences in our lives that have been funny, if not um, like directly us being funny. The, the circumstances have been funny or someone else has been funny and you can tell that from your perspective and that's still absolutely fine. You know, the stories generally need to be true, <laughs> really. Mm -hmm. um, that, that, that makes a, a bigger difference for them and it's probably a good place to start. But, uh, but again, the, the thing of you know, why you need to try that stuff out because some of the stories that you might have thought hilarious in your life maybe were just hilarious at the time or yeah. to the people who were involved in it and don't translate outside of that, which is, which is where you can start to get into real problems. But, yeah. uh, but unless you, unless you genuinely don't laugh at anything in your life and you have no real humor, you will find stuff. You will mm. find stuff that is, that is funny or that has made you laugh. And, and I do think you know, that one thing I've experienced through journaling is that I actually remember more of the things from the past, like stuff that is like, not to say suppressed memories, but just stuff that's generally been forgotten about. Uh, the more, more I journal and think about what's been going on, the more stuff that comes back to my memory. So my my resource of places to go for stories and and to put stuff together, which would probably work just as well with uh, uh, with humor as with uh, any kind of storytelling, uh, is it ever is expanding? I say 
not, not exponential, but more than I more than I expected, simply because that's I guess that's where I'm putting my focus and my brain's just throwing out more and more stuff. Mm-hmm. So that so it's interesting as as an experience that I highly recommend it. I know journaling isn't for everybody and I don't I, I'm not like dear diary, here's every single thing that happened in my day. I, I can't do that. But I can do like bullet points and uh and keep try and keep a reasonable habit of that. But I do find then when I start, if I miss any days, which I inevitably do, I feel like I've missed out. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. It, because it becomes part of a routine, and, and because I get a lot, I feel like I get a lot of value from it. I get some insights into myself, and you know, it's that thing of the examined life. Really, it's, mm-hmm. it's a way of examining your own life. But, but so much stuff comes out of it, and so many things in life are naturally humorous anyway that uh, we, we often take for granted or some of the things that maybe seem gentle or mildly humorous that everyone can actually relate to and that that's important as well that relatability in the humor can work really well too um i want to come on to it's not everyone who i speak to who's, who's written their own book so you have created a book called getting uh, get a job without going crazy Right, and so so it relates to what you do professionally. But where did the idea for that book come from for you? So, uh, interestingly enough, way back in like 2009, when I was still doing my career coaching on the side, and you know, I was working in human resources. I actually had a combo job with human resources and accounting, and so I had this side gig going, and I was generating so much materials for the class. It was okay, either bite the bullet and write the book or drop doing these silly classes and just focus hardcore on my HR career. I did the stop and evaluated what was it that I really enjoyed in my professional life. And it was this whole moment of when I'm teaching a class and all of a sudden these job seekers have been struggling with their search to the point where it's like damaging their personal self-esteem because it's like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get a job? And then they learn these tricks and traps that HR puts there or the ways to network, like the real stuff on how you do the job search. And then all of a sudden just seeing that light bulb go on and their faces brighten and there's that sense of relief they get because all of a sudden they understand, hey, this is not about me personally. This is about my strategies and tactics. And now I know how to change them because I see all the tricks and traps that HR is putting out there and greatly increase my chances of finding a job with a lot less grief and pain. And it's like, when I realized that's what I loved and that was like my latest purpose in life, I was like, all right, I'm in. I am writing this book, absolutely. And cranked it out in about two months on the first edition. Um, the The second edition I spent longer because I was working with some professional editors in the third edition was a very big overhaul for modernization and a lot of updated strategies and things like that. And that one took uh, almost a year, (laughs) which is a sad statement, but, you know, I committed a lot to it to make sure that we are getting it as solid as possible. Yeah. And and that's still the purpose of the job, the book itself. And and really everything you do as a career coach. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that is a great, metaphor for many things in life really that you know one of the things I think often stops people from getting started whether it's humor or public speaking or writing a book is thinking that it needs to be perfect thinking that mm-hmm. it needs to be uh, you know great off the bat and it's like well you know editing is uh, editing is key for everything that you do um, but as, as we get 
that even with creating a book, um, getting it done is more valuable than waiting until it's perfect to publish it. And getting it out there is, uh, you know, thing of, well, okay, then the second edition, you do some different things and you put in some new information, you update it. Third edition, you overhaul the whole thing. And because you've grown, you've learned more, uh, not just you, but you know, things have developed outside as well that you need to address. Uh, and that keeps it relevant because, you know, you could always keep updating and wait to publish that. Like, oh, there's new information coming through. Let's wait. It's like, no, no, get it out there and then update it when you when it's needed you know if it's doing well and people like what you're putting out there put more stuff in there do a sequel or do a do a second or third edition and that's a, a good way to think about things in life is like you know we're, we're always evolving we're always growing we're gonna get better at the things we do you know even as a i've been doing coaching and training for years and i know that there's still there's still a journey ahead of me and anything that i've done that i feel like i'm good at i feel like i have talent in even I know that there's still growth potential there. It's not like, okay, well, I'm there now. I've got it. That's it. We're done. We're good. It's like it, that continues on. And, and I think there's a, a good examples of, of that happening in your professional life. And uh, you know, it happens for all, it should be hopefully for all of us in all of our lives. Let's keep right. the evolution going. We're, uh, we need to grow. We don't get to a point where it's like, okay, I, I can stop now. Uh, yeah. Hopefully we don't anyway. <laughs> the only time we should really get there is when it's all over. Yeah. It's like a lot of people tell me I didn't even start doing stand-up comedy until I was 48 years old. And sometimes people are like, wow, that's like really late to start a comedy career. I'm like, it is? I had no idea there was an age limit on this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's hope for me then. I'm 48 at the moment. Maybe I'll start mine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, the, to be honest, that has, I think, to some degree been one of the reasons for, not that I want to be a, a professional stand-up comedian, but but because I want to be better at doing humor and presentations myself. And I don't think I'm bad at it, but I know that I could be a lot better. And, you know, some some of my jokes kind of are a bit cringy sometimes and dad joke kind of things. And um, I think there's a, a lot of opportunity for growth and development. So having these kind of conversations isn't just hopefully helping me, it's helping anyone who's watching or listening to, to the show to be thinking about, okay, well, maybe I can do this. Perhaps I, I can go for it. And maybe I should just give it a try because, you know, you, the, when it gets to the end of our lives, we're, we're not going to regret the the things we did nearly as much as the things we didn't even try. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think that that's an important thing to remember. Is like if you've got a message or you want to give it a try, you think you could make people laugh or you'd like to give it a go, go and do it anyway and risk falling flat on your face because at least then you know you tried. Yeah. You can definitely do a lot of Zoom open mics right now. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's several of them being run across the world different time zones things like that and it's like yeah pop into that test stuff out if it fails miserably you don't ever have to do that material again <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly you, you have to test that stuff out i think that again you know, i was sort of thinking about uh one of someone who i interviewed while i was talking about one of his favorite books being by jerry seinfeld and and that uh, in the book jerry seinfeld was talking about uh, this whole sort of thing of trying material and he said he'd actually sort of been in clubs and having these jokes on cards like trying them out no laugh psh, that one's done <laughs> that kind of thing and and that the work and the effort that goes into finding what is finally finding what works finding what audiences like and um, some of the comedians i've spoken to recently saying you know sometimes um they think their set's funny and go out with a new set and people are laughing but not necessarily where they've planned the laughs and uh, mm-hmm. sometimes laughing in very different bits so um 
so I, I don't want to take up too much of your day but with, with the conversation. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. But, but I do want to ask a little bit about you know, what, what about the improvisation? Are there ever any points where uh, you feel that it's uh, good to improvise or that you bring in any points of you know, just playing around with your material whilst you're, whilst you're performing? That's where I really miss being in front of a live audience more than anything. Because... And I don't know what it is, but this is just kind of like how I work, whether it's doing the presentations about job searching or professional development or like a pure stand-up set is I get a certain energy from being on stage and it is not uncommon for me to come up with something brand new right on the moment. And it's kind of based on that energy feedback I'm getting from the crowd and the, I just love that. And you don't get that same interaction with the materials and working on Zoom. It's just not the same. I mean, it's it's good substitute as far as like the Zoom meetings and the Zoom open mics and all the rest of that. But that's where I really miss having a real audience. Yeah, I mean, I can say the same in the world of, um, training and uh, and on and live events that um, there's just this energy in in the room when you have a, a group of people who are there to to learn to grow to get inspired or whatever else but you get a buzz in the room that you just don't get in uh, in online is that uh, the, the only buzz you get is any feedback on the microphone unfortunately but um, <laughs> you can get you can get a bit of feedback from people in in terms of like you know, there are i think zoom now has some facilities for people to put uh, um some emojis in and, and uh, clap or i don't think there's a laugh one in there but maybe there could be wrong but um it's, it's not not nearly the same when i get that so again it's like having to maybe learn a different style or um at least make those adaptations for the meantime but i don't think it's ever really going to replace uh, a live performance because that that energy is quite unique and i think it is impossible to replace um i don't i don't know if the world of virtual reality is going to get to a point where we feel like we're there and it makes it the same but even then i suspect that because our brains will know that we're in a simulation <laughs> that, uh, right. that it will be, that it will, that it will, no, we won't have that same buzz. It won't be quite the same as we get the energy from each other when we're, when we're sharing space together in interesting stuff. And, uh, and certainly hope for you, for you that you're able to get back to doing uh, live presentations very soon as well. And same to you. Same to you. Certainly. We just, just next week, restarting our, uh, Toastmasters Club here in Valencia with um, w- w- for indoors for the first time in a while but we have like limitations on how many people can be in the room and everyone has to keep their masks on and all this kind of stuff so it's going to be interesting but uh, but at least it's um, in the right direction hopefully we get to a point soon enough where we can start to ditch the masks and get close to each other again uh, I, look, I think we all look forward to the end of this but uh, let's hope it's sooner rather than later. I want to start bringing things to a close today. And one of the things I always like to ask, I guess, well, apart from your own book, is there a book that you would generally always recommend to people and say, this this is a book you should definitely read? So this one's going to sound a little weird and out of left field, but it's absolutely critical. And it's Stephen King's On Writing. So it's half autobiographical, half advice on writing, 
And a lot of what I do is involved with, like, of course, writing blogs, writing resumes, books, stuff like that. And his advice on how to put together things so it reads better, like one of his statements is, uh, kill your darlings, right? right? I mean, sure, go ahead, get all your rough draft stuff out there, throw out everything you need. But understand, you're always going to do a second or a third draft, and you're going to kill half of that stuff to get to the good things, get rid of the fluff, get to the point. And that's the same with comedy, the same presentations, definitely on like our resumes, CVs, LinkedIn profiles. Um, I mean, there's some other science involved with that that has to do with keywords and searching and, you know, all the other things that I cover with that. But, you know, that's one of the things when I'm training and mentoring my writers on my staff is that understanding of get to what's most impactful, let the rest fall away and everything improves. There's, there's, I mean, that's great advice. And, and it's uh, some of that, I've you know, come across versions of that before, I think, but uh, definitely interested to check that out because I'd read uh, a book by um, Philip Pullman, the uh, Dark Materials author, uh, and it's about his writing. And it's really a compilation of articles and interviews, but it, it's just lovely to sort of hear about the structuring and the ideas and uh, the, the what goes in behind the, the thoughts, behind the finished product and the thinking about writing, the sort of uh, me- is it metacognition, the metacognition behind it of how... Uh, how, how to think about what you're going to think about and those kinds of things as well. Um, it's all really, really interesting and, and very important for comedy presentation likes, as you say. I'd like to just bring in, uh, before we get to final thoughts, uh, ask what the best way is, other than checking out your Tattooed Freaks in Businesses podcast, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? So uh, there's our main business website. So my company's name is incredibly long and ridiculous. So it's Personal Touch career services obviously the website's based on that so personal touch career services.com or you know you can just google that uh i'm on linkedin i do a lot on linkedin so that's donna shannon on linkedin here in denver colorado if you can't figure out which one of those that is uh as far as the comedy stuff uh things are done under my production arm on Facebook, Coyote Visions. So that's C-O-Y-O-T-E, Visions, again, plural. And that's, Facebook is really the main way to get in touch with us there. As far as like, you're getting a comic for your Zoom meetings, seeing what upcoming virtual shows we're doing, all of those kind of things. Uh, and I highly encourage people to to check out your your book and your your podcast as well. And uh, so it's been it's been a real pleasure talking to you. So let's let's wrap up with some closing thoughts to leave our audience with today. Sure. Uh, so if you want to get some evaluation on your job search, we do offer a free fifteen minute consultation. Uh, we also take a look at your resume or your CV. Uh, so you can. Definitely sign up for that on the website. Just come to the contact page and I'll let you book out an exact time to meet with one of us about that. And then as far as the other profound thought that I would leave you with is, there's a quote from Sherlock Holmes, which is, once you've eliminated the impossible, what remains, no matter how improbable, is going to be your solution. And that can be the path for your career as well. Excellent stuff. Donna, I really enjoyed chatting with you today and uh, it's 
I've learned a lot from you. It's been a very enjoyable conversation. We've had some funny stories and a lot of different insights, so many different areas and a, an interesting history to get there. We've covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much for, you, for your time and everything you shared with us today. All right. Thank you very much for having me. It was great. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember to like and subscribe and leave us a review if you can, especially on Apple Podcasts. Whilst you're here, why not get yourself a free copy of my new ebook, The Five Key Beliefs of Bulletproof Business Speakers, available from my website, presentinfluence.com. If you'd like to get in touch, if you're interested in being a guest on the show, please shoot me an email, john at presentinfluence.com or get in touch with me on social media. You can find me on Twitter, John A. Ball, or you can come and join me in my Facebook group, Speaking Influence, which I invite you to do because I'm sharing regular daily content there, additional material, live interviews, live shows. You can come and join in and get interactive with us here on Speaking of Influence and Beyond. I look forward to seeing you next time. Have an amazing week. Bye-bye.